Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is uh, Jerusalem Studio. Jonathan Chesin is away on assignment. I am Amir Oren and uh, with us uh, today to analyze the effects of the Russia-Ukraine war on the Middle East uh, in general and Syria in particular are Reserve uh, Major General Gershon Akoyen, a former um, commander of an army corps and a seasoned armored commander, especially on the uh, Syrian front. Uh, General Akoyen, welcome. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Also, Reserve Brigadier General uh, Daron Gavish, uh, a former Air and Missile Defense Chief for the Israeli military. General Gavish, welcome. Hello, good morning. And uh, we are a few days after uh, Rosh Hashanah, so uh, Shana Tova. Shana Tova to all. And uh, with me in the studio is uh, Professor Ephraim Inbar, President of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Good morning and Happy New Year to everybody. Now, let's start with um, um, a relatively recent development. The um, commanding general of the American Air Forces in the Central Command, AFSENS, has recently said that uh, the um, Russian Air Force in Syria um, has become uh, bolder uh, and more intrusive in its uh, cargo flights uh, near the Atanif garrison in um, South Syria, uh, which is uh, closer to the Jordanian-Iraqi uh, border. And the American general said that um, he believes that this is because several Russian commanders have been reassigned from the Ukraine, and in order to make up for their poor performance there, are now trying uh, uh, to be bolder vis-a-vis -vis the Americans. Uh, they are not uh, coordinating wisdom flights as they did before. So let me ask you, General Gavish, first. Uh, is that a plausible explanation for the uh, performance of Russians who have come from the Ukraine to Syria rather than the other way around, which we will also go into later? I think it is, uh, it is of course, uh, possible, but uh, I would look at it a bit uh, different. I wouldn't say it is, I wouldn't look at it as something personal, although there is always this uh, personal aspect. I think that uh, we should look at it uh, more uh, from a strategic point of view. I think uh, that we have to look at it from uh, Russia interest or Russia behavior toward our arena. Um, as um, uh, you know, as part of what is happening to them uh, in Ukraine. So I think that the way that Russia is behaving in uh, Syria is also all kind of signs that uh, they would like to um, probably send uh, to the Americans and uh, to others, uh, whilst they are taking in account the full picture uh, uh, or from from the Russia point of view uh, and for the strategic. Uh, um, way of thinking. Uh, so I think that the behavior, it's not only a matter of something which is specific uh, to those persons. I think this is a signal which have a strategic application. 
General Cohen, um, in the post-World War II uh, period, the officers of your generation studied the uh, great battles uh, of that war, the um, Russians, the Germans, the Americans, the British. Um, but later on, our own um, uh, region, the Middle East, supplied the lessons for others, 1967, 1973, 1982, when you were there uh, in Lebanon, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces against the Syrians, and uh, finally, 1991, uh, Desert Storm. Can uh, now the reverse be true, that uh, we in the Middle East, uh, as well as others, learn from what is happening in the Russian-Ukrainian war? Of course, uh, it is a, a great lesson to everyone uh, because it is a huge warfare that uh, really challenging a lot of basic premises that became uh, a leading premises for all military organizations. First of all, the war is taking a continuity that really threatening the whole military organizations, especially uh, it is a threat to Israel. The fact that no international efforts succeeding to bring a horizon to an end for that war is a, an indication that maybe even wars in the Middle East will just come to take more time. Uh, it is a disaster to Israel and uh, in a way, maybe Iranian uh, leadership in Nasrallah understanding that. Uh, this is regarding the time, but also regarding the weapons and the uh, range of distance of the front. It brought back a necessity of simple quantity of simple weapons and ammunition, artillery from uh, the first uh, 60s and 50s of the last century, we can show, we can see, observe the effectiveness of that uh, weapons, a lot of artillery, uh, making the role of the battle, uh, bringing back the artillery to be the queen of battlefield. All that lessons making a necessity uh, to reassess all uh, considerations regarding the uh, postmodern warfare. Of course, we can find a lot of uh, uh, function of uh, uh, unmanned RPV uh, 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 and others uh, that uh, uh, making a very, very important role, but at the end, the battlefield is designed by massive, intensive troops in the field. Uh, Professor Inbar, uh, it has been more than 100 years since uh, the saying, which is now uh, a cliche, has been coined that war is too important to uh, be left to the generals, uh, with all due respect to General Gavish and General uh, Hakohan. So looking at it from the um, point of view of a civilian leadership, Although in Russia, it is uh, difficult to separate the civil from the military. We know that um, defense ministers, even if they come from the civilian sector, such as uh, the current one, Shoigu, uh, immediately 
wear uniforms and are considered generals. But nevertheless, what can um, a civilian uh, leader, uh, and of course there's a difference between um, a dictator and a democratically elected leader, what can he or she um, understand from the conduct of this war? I think that in, the, in Russia, you can still see a distinction between civilian and, uh, and the military. After all, the political leadership uh, runs the war. It was a decision by Putin, and uh, the military follows. Uh, I think they do it reluctantly, but they do. Uh, at the strategic level, uh, I would like to point out two elements. Uh, the first element is, of course, the nuclear issue. Putin did not hesitate to use uh, nuclear threats to deter the West from intervening. And this is exactly why this war continues uh, and uh, we see no really end to it. But, but why is that uh, surprising? Uh, nuclear weapons, um, ever since Nagasaki, have been used for deterrence. And uh, this uh, was uh, uh, perhaps um, only in the philosophical sense. But here, Putin has a case in point. He wants uh, to remind uh, everyone that deterrence uh, can be applied to a certain case in a certain place and at a certain time. Is that uh, such um, uh, a difference? Well, first of all, it worked we see that uh, deterrence worked. Basically, the West that is supporting uh, Ukraine uh, with money, uh, with uh, equipment, uh, does not intervene. And I don't see any possibility for them intervening. Another issue that should be paid attention to is uh, annexation. The Putin decided to annex areas uh, against uh, the international uh, norm. And uh, this uh, is something that others may definitely uh, emulate uh, in the near uh, future. Maybe, maybe he emulated. You, uh, you did not oppose the annexation of the Golan Heights to Israel, did you? No, I did not. I did not, and I think it was uh, the right decision. And uh, Putin... Uh, uh, through his behavior during the Syrian crisis, actually agrees to it. Now, General Gavish, um, when I uh, listed uh, the wars uh, in the Middle East, uh, which uh, others have learned from, I skipped one, the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, which um, in its final phase, the war of the cities, brought to the world uh, missile barrages against civilian uh, targets uh, as well as uh, on the battlefield. What can uh, you learn, you um, air and missile defense experts, what can you learn from what happened, uh, what is happening in the Ukraine and the fact that Russia saw fit to take uh, some of its S-300 systems out of Syria and into the front in the Ukraine? But allow me first to go back to the to the point that was mentioned before because I think it's it is super important and this is the nuclear issue. And uh, of course, when we are looking it into our region, we could see why nuclear uh, cannot be in uh, in our region from for the Israeli interests, uh, even before being threatened by it. 
this is a tool for deterrence, and, uh, and um, this is something that uh, Israel won't like uh, to see in uh, in our area. We won't be, we won't like to be deterred in any way. And uh, this is, of course, something that uh, influenced the way of uh, fighting. So I think this is really important point that uh, I wanted to um, uh, to echo. Um, uh, going back to uh, to your question, I think that there was a lot to learn, of course, from the past. You uh, you mentioned the 88 uh, war between uh, Iran and Iraq. It was really a war of uh, missiles uh, that uh, both uh, were shooting uh, at, each, at each other. Of course, uh, we as Israel learned a lot from, from this war and from other wars, uh, mainly from 2006. Uh, here in Israel, and uh, we have to remember that uh, Israel uh, have uh, a strategy uh, which is dealing uh, with this issue of uh, missiles and uh, rocket. And uh, from the military point of view, we call it uh, the multi-tier defense. Uh, Israel is being defended uh, from the last, uh, I would say, decade uh, by a multi-tier defense. It starts with the Iron Dome as the first layer, and then the David Sling. And then the arrow two and the arrow three and the arrow four would uh, would also come. So this is a multi-tier defense, something that was uh, developed here in Israel, and it was also a lesson learned uh, from what we saw uh, in the previous uh, wars. But it seems yeah. as if it seems it seems as if the air force, uh, especially the Russian air force, uh, did not have such a, an impact on the um, uh, ground operations in the Ukraine. Uh, well, it's a great leader. Yes, it's a question why in the, in the Israeli Air Force are trying to get the lessons. What is the reason for that uh, ineffectiveness of Russian's Air Force? Yeah, there, there is a lot uh, to look at. It's not only the Air Force uh, that is not very efficient there. We saw what happened in the last uh, <coughs> few, uh, few months. Uh, but of course, you know, this is something to look at. This is something uh, to examine. Uh, you were talking about uh, the S-300, uh, of course, uh, from Israel point of view. Uh, something like this in our arena is a challenging uh, situation for us. So as long as it's not here, it works for our uh, interest. And uh, so, yes, we are looking at the Ukrainian uh, war. We are trying to learn exactly why they are behaving the, the way that they are behaving. Is it a lack of capabilities? Is it... Uh, uh, different military strategies that they are applying and uh, so on. Uh, so there's a lot to learn yet. Uh, General Cohen, you mentioned earlier the time factor. And essentially, uh, it's the specter of wars of attrition uh, with no end in sight. Um, and that could happen uh, here too. Uh, of course, we had our own war of attrition in 1969-1970, but it was uh, mostly a war of fire, not of maneuver. And um, uh, this time, uh, if there is another war, it could take that too. And the question is, if um, uh, general staffs uh, look ahead and they understand that they have, first of all, to sustain such a war, do they have to build up uh, quantities of uh, munitions and uh, perhaps uh, armored vehicles. And also they have uh, to balance legacy systems with uh, modern or modernized ones. How does one factor in um, all of these considerations? Uh, 
It is a main challenge for the IDF leadership, especially for chief of staff. He's really challenged by that. He's aware that we really lack a quantity. Still, the whole paradigm in the last decades is that IDF prefer a way of quality against quantity. So we must really reconsider all that paradigm. But just to emphasize the importance of that uh, threat of an endless war, uh, it was the main lessons we must learn from uh, Iran-Iraq warfare. At the moment that Khomeini realized that he cannot really bring victory against the military forces of Saddam Hussein that wanted to bring an end to that war in two weeks. Khomeini succeeded to do something else. It is the idea of deniability. He denied the potential of bringing an end to that war. He just denied the control of the Iraqians upon the end. And that war continued to take eight years. This is an idea that really make inspiration to Hezbollah. And it is if they will fight like that, it is not only attrition warfare like what we really uh, experienced in Sinai Suez Canal, because it was far away from Israeli cities. Today, they can make a threat of attrition warfare, including the cities, the civilian life. And this is a real uh, threat to Israel. We might take it seriously. But uh, uh, if that's the case, um, what are the centers of gravity um, whose elimination could bring an end? Uh, Would it be Nasrallah himself, um, uh, Iranian uh, leadership? It is a a system that uh, intentionally was based in order to prevent a a basement of one or two center of gravity. It is a a uh, well-intended idea that even if we will come to Beirut, still the war could go ahead and we will not really can bring a promise to end it. This is a great challenge to every planning of Israeli uh, strategic concept today about the new warfare. Professor Inbar, what can uh, uh, nations in the area or perhaps organizations such as uh, Hezbollah learn from the performance uh, of the Russians in the Ukraine regarding their viability as an ally and um, taking into consideration that um, when push comes to shove, the Russians will prefer their own interests to those um, of their clients. Um, The Russians are in Syria to uh, support Assad, but if they have to sacrifice uh, Assad or the Assad family and regime uh, for the sake of their own uh, survival or victory, they will not hesitate to do so. I think the first lesson learned in in the region by Iran, for example, is that giving up nuclear weapons, as Ukraine did, is a recipe for aggression against them. And this is definitely will strengthen their will 
to attain uh, a nuclear arsenal. Uh, we see also uh, that actually Russia gets closer to Iran uh, together with China. We see a crystallization of uh, anti-American bloc in the Middle East. The Russians actually have a very good reputation of sticking to their allies. And this is what they did in Syria. And if they have to uh, reduce somewhat their presence in Syria, uh, I don't think they will eliminate it because their presence in Syria is a threat on the, is a threat on the southern flank of NATO. Uh, they would like to keep it uh, there, and I don't think uh, Assad is uh, fearing an abandonment by, by the Russians. Uh, General Gavish, uh, Professor Nibar uh, mentioned NATO, the southern flank, Israel um, under the uh, American uh, scheme of areas of responsibility has been moved from the European command to the Central Command. But you um, uh, have a lot of experience uh, with Yukon, with, with uh, the Sixth Fleet, especially when uh, in exercises uh, such as uh, austere challenge, they send their ages assets uh, afloat uh, to Israel to help in case of uh, Iranian uh, attacks. Uh, this, of course, uh, has never been tested uh, in combat, but nevertheless, there is this lesson, or uh, there is this um, uh, contingency plan. Now, the Russians are in Syria. Uh, their uh, fleet is based there. Is that uh, a factor which um, both Israel and the United States uh, uh, should have in mind when they uh, plan ahead? Well, of course, the, the, the Syrians, the, the Russians being in Syria, this is something that uh, need to be uh, taken in consideration. Uh, this is uh, for sure. But I think uh, that uh, if we're looking at the last um, years, uh, Israel had, uh, I mean, in, in Israel, from the point of view of uh, working within, uh, within uh, Syria, did what it uh, planned to do. Uh, the Russians are, are still there, but Israel is still doing what they think, uh, what, what the country is thinking that uh, should be done there in Syria. So, of course, uh, there should be a consideration, but uh, I would say this is something that won't uh, prevent us uh, to, to fight and to do whatever is needed once the Israeli interest is there. Uh, but uh, for sure, we have to take it as, a, as something uh, to consider. By the way, I want to uh, also say that, uh, you know, we talked about it uh, before that uh, uh, the Syrians came to uh, kind of defense their, defend their uh, Syrian allies. Uh, but I think that the truth is that uh, they took this opportunity, which was like something like uh, seven years ago, uh, to bring back their footprint into the Middle East. This was the main uh, idea. I don't think that uh, saving the Syrians was the main uh, interest. The main interest was the footprint in the, in the Middle East and, uh, uh, you know, putting themselves as the one who are, um, with their own allies, which are the Iranian, the Syrians, and, uh, uh, and putting themselves in a position that uh, they are against uh, what the United States is, uh, is doing in the Middle East and uh, also, by the way, in Europe. I mean, from their point of view, I think that they look at it from a broad picture that uh, they see it as uh, NATO is challenging, challenging them in uh, Europe and United States is also challenging them in the Middle East. So this is the main reason when, why they, they, they are here. So from one 
coin they see it as a challenge, from the other coin they see it as an opportunity uh, to have a footprint and to bring back them uh, themselves as a as a country or as, or as a superpower that uh, uh, could have his own allies against uh, the United States and the West. Uh, Gershon, uh, let's talk about, um, in the uh, uh, remaining time, about uh, the several M's of the uh, war. There is Moscow, there is manpower, there is uh, motivation, and there's material. Now there's also mobilization on the uh, Russian side. Um, are the uh, uh, Russian-made, or what we used to call Eastern, Eastern Bloc-made systems, inferior to the Western ones, and if that's the case, have the Americans especially found a way to stay out of uh, the fight while supplying um, their uh, friends, in this case uh, the Ukraine, uh, more modern uh, systems? It's not really just a, a question of uh, technological superiority it is mainly uh, the superiority of concepts, and here we are recognizing intelligence superiority, the help of British intelligence and American intelligence to the Ukrainian is very, very important. And we are really facing, from the beginning of that war, uh, the dominance of uh, accurate and uh, strategic op operational intelligence as a necessary uh, part of uh, relevancy regarding the direction of warfare. The Russians are really lacking uh, in good intelligence. Beyond that, what we really are facing, and it is really a deep lesson. Uh, you mentioned the aspect of motivation. What we can learn is the uh, importance very, very critical importance of a national motivation. The Ukrainians are coming with absolute uh, presence of national uh, motivation, and the Russians are still thinking that they can win a war like they did in Syria or in Crimea without really requiring the whole people uh, motivation. Actually, this idea uh, collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> everyone in the world, and especially for leaders, uh, political leaders, about a necessary condition before deciding to go to a war, whether at all the people are supporting the war. And we are all very, very uh, experienced with that uh, huge uh, dilemma. General, and, General uh, Lacoin, General Lacoin, yes. the the war may take uh, uh, much longer, but our time um, has uh, run to its end. And um, I'd like uh, to thank Professor Ephraim Inbar, General Gershon Akoyan, General uh, Doron Gavish. Thank you all for um, participating. And we will be back with another edition of uh, Jerusalem Studio. Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.